Hebrews 20.20, we see Jesus, and I believe this is the 40th message that's been delivered since our physical separation, and it's increment 51, and we'll go to Hebrews 2.11. I've just been apprised of a prayer request just moments ago, and we'll begin with a couple of them. Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have to approach the throne of grace, to receive help and support in time of need. And we have the command to pray for all saints and for all people, for that matter, and for those who are in authority. And today we present our petition to you for Jim Andrews, who has recently undergone a stroke And we pray that you'll be mighty in his recovery and that you'll be with Lynn, his wife, both of whom are our dear friends, and that you'll speak peace into her heart and into their home, peace and healing to Jim, and that you'll be with his caregivers in a remarkable way also. We pray also for Larry Fusen, that's F-U-S-A-N, who's undergoing a heart procedure and who is also afflicted with lung cancer. We've received this request this morning. We pray, Father, that you will be with him and with the physicians during this procedure and that you will also be for him a mighty healer and bring about quick recovery and surprising healing healing that is surprising in the eyes of his caregivers, his medical, the medical professionals, and his family. We thank you, Father, for the privilege of coming before your throne to ask for this help in time of need, for without you and without the spirit of grace, there's no way we can lay hold of the treasury of your word. And hold it in our hearts. We pray that you'll open our eyes. The eyes of our hearts now. That we may behold wonderful things. In your word. And we know that the sum total. Of all those wonderful things. Is Jesus. Thank you for the privilege that we have. Of seeing him. Even in such a time as this. We thank you in his name. Amen. Hebrews 2.11 contains the first and foremost statement of the perfect solidarity of the Son of God with humanity, saying, both the sanctifier and the sanctified are all of one, because of which he, that's Jesus the sanctifier, is not ashamed to call them, that's we the sanctified, brothers and sisters. The PT fortifies this statement of solidarity with three declarations, which he interprets correctly to have been spoken by the son of God, who is also the son of David, according to the flesh. One comes from, as we've seen, Psalm twenty-two, twenty-two, which is the Septuagint. Now I put LXX in front of, all of the Greek text references. And that's only for an abbreviated 
effect. I'm speaking there of not just the Septuagint, but of any authorized Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures. And Psalm 22:22 that he quotes is found in the Septuagint or the Greek text of 21:23 of the Psalms. In Hebrews 2:12, he cites one from that Psalm and two he cites from the prophet Isaiah chapter 8. The first from 817, the second 818. He cites those two in Hebrews 2.13. All of these are statements of the perfect solidarity of the Son with humanity, a perfection or a completion that was brought about through the suffering of the Son of God. The statement from the Psalms is quoted in Hebrews 2.12. I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters In the midst of the congregation, I will sing hymns to you. The two from Isaiah are quoted back to back in Hebrews 2.13. I will put my trust in him, comes from the latter part of Isaiah 8.17. And again, here am I with the children God has given me, from the Greek text of Isaiah 8.18. Now, the perfect solidarity of the Son with the people in behalf of whom and for whom he tasted death. This is a people on behalf of whom and for the supreme benefit of whom he tasted death. That solidarity between him and them is indicated first by the Son, the Sanctifier, being of one entity, not just one origin, one entity with the sanctified. Second, this perfect solidarity, won by the sufferings of the Son, is indicated by the Son coming to be of the same family with those for whom he suffered and died. Remember, What's coalescing here is the doctrine of the perfect solidarity of Jesus with all of humanity. And that answers the question of why God the Son had to be completed. In what sense did he have to be perfected or completed? And that's in perfect solidarity with humanity. And why through suffering? Because as we will see and as we have seen, suffering was required to remove the monstrous obstacle between that that son and the people whom he sanctified, that obstacle being sin. And so to be made perfect, he had to be perfected or completed as a sin offering to remove the sin that blockaded his perfect solidarity with all people. Third, the perfect solidarity of the Son with the many children whom God called to glory is signified by the fact and the reality that he, the Son, and the Sanctifier trusted in God representatively. And I use that word, a new adverb maybe to us, representatively for all those for whom he suffered and died. 
Fourth, that completion of the Son or perfecting of the Son in redeemed humanity is shown in that he presents himself to all the angels in company with the human children whom God gave to him. It seems to be to the angels that he said, here am I with the children God gave to me. When Jesus presents himself in this way, he is showing that future world is to be ruled not by angels, but by the son of man and by human beings in solidarity with him. Here I am with the children God has given me. Has the eschatological ring to it. That is so reminiscent of the words. Aistotelos. Which characterizes Psalm 22. Or the Septuagint 21. As well as Psalm 45. Which is the Greek 44. And Psalm 8. In the telos. T-E-L-O-S. Jesus the son. In whom God speaks his final word says evidently in the presence of all the angels and to all the angels, here I am, the ruler of the world that was long expected and now has come. And here I am with the children God has given me. Now this brings us back to the son of man under whose feet God has placed everything. And that again from Psalm 8, 7 of the Septuagint, which is quoted in Hebrews 2, 8a. This son of man to whom God says also in another Psalm, Psalm 110:1 or 109:1 in the Greek text. God says, sit at my right hand until I turn all of your enemies into a footrest for your feet. That's quoted in Hebrews 1.13 and alluded to in Hebrews 10.13. Now it's argued by commentators whether or not this son of man, as he's called, is in any way related to the mysterious figure the cloud man, as we may call him, of Daniel 7, who was seen in a particularly riveting apocalyptic night vision by the prophet Daniel. In Daniel 7 and verses 13 and 14, and also in 727, we're going to look at those three verses. Daniel entered these words into his prophetic journal. He apparently had a journal and he put these words into that journal. And I'm going to give the old Greek translation from the new English translation of the Septuagint. Now they've carefully reproduced two Greek versions of Daniel. The first they call the old Greek and it, is on the left column, I believe, of the page. And then the second is the Theodosian, 
version, which is a later version, oftentimes an improvement on that version, found in the right-hand column of Daniel. I'm using the old Greek rendition of the New English translation of the Septuagint. And it reads like this. And I'm reading 713 of Daniel, 713 and 14. And I hope you'll listen carefully. 713 and 14. And then skipping quickly to 727. Though that skips a lot of material, there's a continuity there, as I think you'll see. So here it is. Daniel 713. I was watching in the night visions, Daniel writes in his journal. And lo, as it were, a son of man was coming upon the clouds of heaven. And he came as far as the ancient of days. And the attendants were present with him. Verse 14, and royal authority was given to him. And all the nations of the earth, according to posterity, and all honor was serving him. And his authority is an everlasting authority, which shall never be removed. And his kingship, which will never perish. Then 27 of Daniel 7. And he shall give authority and the kingdom and the magnitude of all the kingdoms which are under heaven to the holy people of the Most High to reign over an everlasting kingdom and all authorities will be subjected to him. And obey him until the conclusion of the word, which means, of course, endlessly in this context. Son of man, with attendance, giving authority to the sanctified of the Most High God, and all authority subjected to him. That sounds to me very familiar. To the figure we have in Hebrews spoken of from Psalm 8, the Septuagint of 8, 5 through 7 in Hebrews 2, 6, 8a through 2, 8b or 6b to 8a of Hebrews 2, chapter 2. And the figure who sits next to the right hand of the father to whom the father says, sit at my right hand until I make all of your enemies a footrest for your feet. Psalm 110.1, Septuagint 109.1, quoted in Hebrews 1.13, alluded to in 10.13. Now, I'm not citing all these numbers to confuse you or to get you rattled or mad at me. I'm doing it to show that there is a cohesion of all these scriptures in this homily which we call Hebrews. One of the most engaging documents in the scriptures, and in my view, the document and sermon and homily that we be, should be attending to in this, our present time. I'll let you decide then if there's a connection between the apocalyptic eschatological son of man who is given all authority and who then 
gives it to the people of the holy ones of the Most High in Daniel. And this son of man spoken of in Hebrews 2. Who is Jesus? The people of the holy ones of the Most High in the old Greek text of Daniel 7.27 is the Greek word lao hagio. It means, quote, the sanctified people of the Most High. It means eschatological Israel, in other words, who are sanctified by Yahweh. Ezekiel 37:28, Yahweh and the sanctified. Yahweh sanctifies Israel. The Theodosian version has simply hagios there, which we would translate as saints. And I think this hagios from Daniel 7.27 is why Paul called those to whom he wrote in all his epistles saints. Because he anticipated them being given the rule of future world. That's just an opinion. If the son of man of Daniel 7, 13 and 14 is the son of man of Psalm 8, 5 through 7 Septuagint referred to in Hebrews 2, 6b to 8a, then the sanctified people of the most high of Daniel 27 must be identified with the sanctified who are all of one with the sanctifier, the son of man in Hebrews 2.11. Now that's a lot to take in, in one message already, but it's worth it to go into a sort of a deep dive in order for us to really see Jesus in all of his magnitude and splendor. This son of man is Jesus who, as we've learned, far from God, tasted death for everyone and who then came to the ancient of days in Daniel's vision who must be identified as the majesty in the heavens whom we know to be God the Father. To me, the essential narrative is the same in Daniel 7, in Psalm 8, and Hebrews. The Son of Man is Jesus, who is the Sir, the single inclusive representative of all of humanity, and who through suffering and death was completed or perfected in a perfect solidarity with all of humanity, whom he lifts above the angels to rule the everlasting future world. That's the narrative. That's my story, and I'm sticking with it. By all accounts, the Son of Man in both Daniel 7 and Psalm 8 is a human being 
who is both a unique individual and a collective of innumerable human beings. That is, he is the embracing of an innumerable company of human beings. The Ancient of Days, as he's called in Daniel's apocalyptic night vision, that Ancient of Days before whom the Son of Man comes to receive an everlasting kingdom, an indestructible kingdom, as opposed to all the kingdoms of this world, is none other than the Son in whom God has spoken with eschatological and soteriological finality in these last days. His name is Jesus, and we see him with the eyes of our heart. He's the one who has been exalted to the right side of the majesty on high. He is the radiance of God's majestic glory, and the eternal stamp of the divine substance. And at the same time, he is he who partook in flesh and blood, or blood and flesh in that order, like his brothers and sisters. The majesty on high, to the right of whom the sun sat down after making purification of sins, Hebrews 1.3 is none other than the ancient of days of Daniel's vision. He is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and now our father. Now we have to ask another twofold question for intelligence. A question for intelligence simply means a question, the answer to which gives us intelligence so that we can be intelligent. There's no intelligence like the mind of Christ. We let the mind of Christ be in us, and that is intelligence. There is no intelligence without humility, and humility asks questions. Humility inquires. Humility lives in the wonder that gives birth to inquiry. So I have to ask, and I'm constantly asking questions of the spirit in the scriptures. We have to ask this twofold question for intelligence. Now consider this. If all of humanity has been lifted from their terrible plight due to sin, and all of humanity has been saved by the Son of Man, in the Christ event, then why is Hebrews a word of exhortation, a word that is intended to impart incentive to the listeners, the readers, the recipients? And why the warnings? Well, I'm beginning to tentatively answer this question by saying that the salvation sanctification of all people by the sanctifier does not seem to guarantee that all the saints will automatically by that status attain the honor 
and the right to rule together with the son in future world to rule together with the son in future worlds. And I say it doesn't seem to indicate that. So I'm going to introduce into play a very important player right here. And that's the summary principle from 2 Timothy 2.12, which says in the A part simply, and it says succinctly, if we persevere, we will rule as kings with him. If we persevere, we will rule as kings with him. Sum Basaluo. Rule as kings together with him. So we have to ask this question. I can't help but ask it. Especially as a pastor, teacher. Is perseverance a precondition for reigning as kings with Jesus in future worlds? Is our perseverance in faith, in hope, in love, abiding in Christ, is our perseverance in this world during the course of this evil age, is our perseverance looking unto Jesus a precondition for reigning or the reward of reigning in future world with him? Now, whatever the answer to that question, perseverance is certainly enjoined or commanded, we could even say, by the PT in Hebrews. Hebrews 10.32 says this, and the writer says this to them. Remember the early days when, after you had been enlightened, you persevered through a struggle involving sufferings. You persevered through a struggle involving suffering, sufferings of various kinds. In Hebrews 12, verses 2 and 3, in a very powerful hortatory piece, the PT writes this. Looking away from everything and everybody else to the founder and completer of faith, the beginner and finisher, we could say, of faith, who instead of the joy that was set before him, persevered through or endured, we could also say for endured, persevered through the cross thinking little of the shame now seated at the right hand of the throne of God consider him who persevered it says under the hostility of sinners against him so that you won't become so tired that you give up Don't you become so tired that you give up. Many are becoming weary in the battle 
tired in the struggle of the spiritual life. Well, don't you become so tired as to give up or want to quit. Don't do it. You have no idea the reward that's on the other side of the struggle. You have no idea of the consequences of it. The remarkable consequences of that reward. As Hebrews 10.35 is going to tell us, don't throw away your confidence. Instead, add perseverance to the mix. You have need of it. So that after you have done the will of God, and that means to cross the finish line of this race, you'll receive what was promised. What is promised? They that persevere will rule together with him. And how about Hebrews 12, 7, which says in essence, and this is my paraphrase, persevere in the father's dealing with you as sons and daughters by regarding it as formative discipline. The father's training us, his children regard it as educative or formative discipline. This formative discipline may well be regarded as training to reign as many have put it before. In any case, it is aimed, this training is aimed at the full formation of Christ in the recipients of this homily. The writer's purpose is primarily pastoral exhortation. Remember that. Again, you always have to keep in front of you Hebrews 13:22 in which the writer himself refers to the epistle in its totality as this word of exhortation. Even the fact that Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters should serve to strongly encourage the recipients of this sermon to identify with their brothers and sisters in Christ. Why are you ashamed to call one of your brothers or one of your sisters or a group of your brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, if Jesus Christ isn't ashamed to call you his brother or you his sister? That's the pastoral exhortation here. So even the fact that Jesus is not ashamed to call us, we could say, his brothers and sisters should serve strongly to encourage the recipients of this sermon, that's us, to identify with our brothers and sisters in Christ who are undergoing maltreatment by the dominant culture of the time, of our time. In fact, toward the very end of Hebrews, And this is an unusual way to go. There's no commentary I've read that went this way, but we'll go this way. Toward the very end of Hebrews, after the exhortation to, quote, let brotherly love, Philadelphia, continue. Let brotherly love continue. In Hebrews 13, 1. And after the 
13.2, the exhortation not to neglect hospitality, where in verse 2 he says, remember those of your brothers and sisters, that is, because he's speaking of brotherly love here, remember those who are in prison, as if imprisoned with them. And those who are mistreated, since you also are, curious phrase here, in the body. Since you also are in the body. You may not be suffering, but you are also in the body of some sufferers right now. Or you may be suffering, and there are others who are in the body suffering with you, even though they're not in your own situation or your particular periphery. The fact that Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters ought to be sufficient incentive for us to identify and not be ashamed of fellow saints who are being mistreated, persecuted, and imprisoned even because of their outspoken confession of faith. In Matthew 25, Jesus goes so far as to say that when we visit the least of his brothers and sisters, and that's what he called them, my brothers and sisters, the least of these, my brethren, when we visit them in prison, or take them in and clothe them because they're outside of the favor of society because of their faith, not for any old reason, but because of their faith. And we take them in and clothe them when they're without proper clothing or feed them when they are without necessary nourishment as Paul was sometimes. When we do that, we are visiting, feeding, and clothing Jesus himself. Jesus calls the imprisoned, the hungry, and the homeless who suffer because of the message they carry. And this is specifically referring to the messengers of the gospel between A.D. 30 and A.D. 70 in Judea. But it carries throughout all of history for all Christians. They suffer because of the message they carry about him. These, Jesus calls, these brothers and sisters of mine. Read it in Matthew 25, 40. He's not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. So by so much and more, does Jesus identify with those whom he has sanctified as his siblings? He identifies them as his siblings. In Hebrews 13, 2, the writer says that by being hospitable, some have actually welcomed and entertained or cared for angels. Beyond this, when we stand with brothers and sisters who are being maltreated in this world, we are standing with Jesus himself. Because the sanctified and the sanctifier are all of one. For this reason, 
Though the final words of Hebrews 13, 3, as also yourselves being in the body. That's again, note that Hebrews 13, 3, as you yourselves also being in the body. They're usually taken to mean as though you yourselves were suffering bodily as the Holman Christian Standard Bible has it, or, quote, as though you too felt their torment, as the New English translation has it, the net. Even though those renditions or those interpretations of those words may very well be fitting, I strongly suspect that there is a kind of double entendre, a double meaning here, in which the PT is reminding his readers, then and now, that they are in the same corporate body, collective entity, with their suffering siblings. If so then the author here reveals a knowledge of Paul's understanding of the church being as one human body, having many parts, and that whole corporate body is Christ. If that's the case, and if he is in fact intending to gesture toward the corporate body of Christ to which we all belong, to which we all belong, then the suffering of our siblings is very much our suffering. And it is impossible for us to detach ourselves from them and from their suffering. Even more, if we are in Christ and he is in us, and we are and he is, And if he is with us, and he is, and we are with him, and we are, then we are with them as he is with them. The phrase en somati, that's E-N, and then S, long O, M-A-T-I, en somati, at the end of Hebrews 13, 3, also brings to the remembrance what Jesus said to his father upon entry into the world, speaking of conversations that we overhear between the father and the son. The son said this upon his entry into the world, you prepared a body for me, Soma, Hebrews 10.5. The body was the indication that the son should become like his brothers and sisters in every way in order to sanctify and to save them. And this brings us back to Hebrews 2 and to the very next verse, which we're going to explore, Hebrews 2.14. Listen carefully. Therefore, since the children, there they are again, share in blood and flesh, so also in just the same way, he partook of the same so that through death he would render powerless 
the one who held dominion over death, that being the slanderer, ton diabolon, the diabolos. Now here there is kind of a connection to Greek mythology as found in Seneca and other authors regarding Hercules. And it's, but it's a faint kind of analogy, but nevertheless, it's a helpful one. We'll bring it out that there is one who has authority over the domain of Thanatos death. And in fact, Jesus defeated him, not Hercules. Well, we'll we'll get back to that. And I don't want to really spend too much time on that, though. Some of the commentators I've read, which are excellent commentators and commentaries, have spent quite a bit of time on the Hercules mythological analogy only for the purposes of teaching. But before advancing into that territory in Hebrews 2.14, there's one more element that I want to bring into increment 51. And that is what I call OTLOT, O-T-L-O-T, all caps. It simply means on the level of our time. As with our study of Revelation under the title Rev the Book, our aim, or my aim at least, included relating Revelation to our own time. What and how should we read Revelation on the level of our time. It's been distorted into a kind of timeline that people are obsessed about today because they're obsessed with the false doctrine of the rapture and the coming of the Antichrist and other things. They've falsely placed these prophecies in front of us. But how should we relate Revelation On the level of our time. The same thing I'm asking with Hebrews. How do we relate Hebrews to 2020? To do that, I want to bring in Isaiah chapter 8. Why? Because Isaiah chapter 8 was quoted twice in Hebrews 2.13 in the statement of or in the doctrine of the solidarity of Jesus Christ with those whom he redeemed or sanctified. Isaiah chapter 8. Now, I would urge you to read this chapter on your own or to study commentaries on it if you want to. I think it would be a very profitable study. I'm not going to go too far with this because I want to bring in these things, but I want to stay kind of lean in the exegesis so we don't get bogged down in the study of Hebrews because I want to go through Hebrews. But it's profitable enough to show that Chapter 8, from which the two quotations are taken in Hebrews 2.13, it's more, it's profitable to look at it in slightly more detail. We've seen, I think, how profitable it is and how it can be profitable or beneficial to reflect on the context of the Psalms from which the PT selects quotations for his homily. We've done that with Psalm 8, with Psalm 45, with Psalm 110, with Psalm 2 and with Psalm 22. The same principle holds true for Isaiah chapter 8 from the prophets, from which 8.17 and 18 are selected 
for quotation. Now, recently I was very pleased to discover that the Matthew Henry commentary is in public domain, which means you can quote it without having to give the source or whatever, but I do like to give the, the source. The Matthew Henry commentary, which I find next to one of the King James versions of the Bible that I have on my Bible Works 7 app on my computer, whatever you call it, it's Bible Works 7, it's excellent. I was pleased to find that the Matthew Henry commentary is in public domain. And so I want to bring some things from there about Isaiah 8 and relate them to the time when Hebrews was written and then to relate them to the time in which we live. And so I think it's profitable to look at the larger context of Isaiah 8 from which these two quotations in 8.17 and 8.18 are made in Hebrews 2.13. Hebrews 2.13 says this, And again, I will put my trust in him. That's a quote from the Septuagint of Isaiah 8.17. And again, there's the nail gun. Here I am with the children God has given me. That is a quotation of Septuagint Isaiah 8.18. Now the Matthew Henry commentary on Isaiah 8 is particularly instructive for the context of these quotations. First, Henry observes that Isaiah chapters 8 through 13, all those chapters, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, six chapters are, quote, one continued discourse or sermon. Just like Hebrews is a sermon, Isaiah chapters 8 through 13 are a continuous sermon. So you might want to even take a look at that whole section of Isaiah and get Young's commentary on it or some good commentary on it, and you might find some very profitable things. In fact, I know you will. The form of Isaiah 8, then, is that of a homily or a sermon, just as Hebrews is definitely a homily or a sermon or a discourse. Second, Matthew Henry observes that the scope of this discourse is, to, is quote, the scope is, quote, to show the great destruction that should now shortly be brought upon the kingdom of Israel and the great disturbance that should be given to the kingdom of Judah by the king of Assyria. That gives you some historical context. What's about to happen in Isaiah's day? Third, Matthew Henry adds that, quote, rich provision is made of comfort. For those who feared God in those dark times, referring especially to the days of the Messiah. Comfort for people in dark times having to do with the Messiah, the days of Messiah. And then he adds this, Matthew Henry's words, great encouragement given to the people of God in the midst of those distractions. They are assured, one, that the enemies shall not gain their point against them, Isaiah 8, 9, and 10. Two, 
that if they kept up the fear of God and kept down the fear of man, listen to that one. If they kept up the fear of God and kept down the fear of man, they should find their refuge. That's Isaiah 8, 11 to 14. And while others stumbled and fell into despair, I said, he said, and while others stumbled and fell into despair. Remember what we just said about getting so tired that you quit. And that's also found here. They should be enabled to wait on God, he says, and should see themselves reserved for better times. That's Isaiah 8, 15 through 18. So we're getting a little bit of context here. You should know and be encouraged that you're being reserved for better times, better times than this. Better times are coming. And the best is yet to come. And babe, won't it be fine? No, I'm sorry. Astonishingly, the commentator then speaks of, quote, the discontented party in Judah. In verse 6, Matthew Henry then observes, and listen carefully to this, this people whom the prophet here speaks to refuse the waters of Shiloh that go softly. They despise their own country and the government of it. And they love to run it down. That's Matthew Henry's words in his commentary about Isaiah. Then he adds, and it's very rare that I put so much of a quote from one commentator at once, but I think this bears a hearing. He then adds, they refuse the comforts which God's prophets offer them from the word of God. Speaking to them in a still small voice and they make nothing of them. Nah, they're nothing. We, that's not true. Uh, and the folly, they consider folly the word of the cross as we saw last time. And then he goes on to say, but they rejoice in Razin and Ramalia, Ramalia's son. Who are the enemies of their country. They rejoice in the enemies of their country while they tear their country down. That's what was going on in Israel and Judah on the eve of their destruction. They rejoice in the enemies of their country who were now actually invading it. Do you know that we're actually being invaded today and that there are people in this country who welcome the conquistadors and welcome the conquerors? And so a lot of genuflecting that's going on in professional sports teams, they think they're honoring some social movement for change when in fact some of them are genuflecting to our enemies in a belligerent nation that wants to take us down and enslave us. 
So I say that I'm astonished about Matthew Henry's commentary, not because Isaiah 8 presents startling resemblance to the situation in Hebrews alone, but also because of its surprising prophetic trajectory to our own times, especially in the country in which I happen to be speaking, and that's called the United States of America in 2020. The year of our Lord, as it's called, 2020. Now, speaking of politicians and others who secretly side with the enemy of their own nation, Matthew Henry then writes this. Such vipers does many a state foster in its bosom that eat its bread and yet adhere to its enemies and are ready to quit its interest if they but seem to totter. And so I say, we have many today who are wittingly or unwittingly kneeling and genuflecting, not to their worthy social causes, but to the brutal and enslaving Communist Party of China, who owns them. And were Chinese armies to march in triumph in our country, many would applaud and side with them like the collaborators did in France when Germany came. And there was some good resistance in France against the Nazis, but there was also some who collaborated. Now, Isaiah 8 was written as a part of a prophetic discourse. Listen, I'm going to close up soon. Isaiah 8 was written uh, as a part of a prophetic discourse on the eve of a great historic shaking. Just as Hebrews was probably composed in the years or months before the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, and perhaps after the fire of Rome which was to be blamed on Christians, if it hadn't already been. Bringing on what Peter called in his first epistle, a fiery ordeal, 1 Peter 4, 12 to 13, through which Christians, he actually uses that name in 1 Peter 4, 14 to 16, were strongly urged and powerfully incentivized to persevere. Like Isaiah 8 8 to 13, those six chapters, Isaiah 8 to 13, Hebrews was written with the ultimate intention of being a word of encouragement to those who feared God, not men. Just beyond chapter 8 of Isaiah, for example, is the very familiar chapter 9, in which the prophet prophesies that, quote, a child will be born for us, speaking of children, and a son given to us, speaking of the son, showing a stark and solid connection of the Isaiah sermon with Hebrews. The Isaiah sermon in chapters 8 through 13 with Hebrews, which begins with God speaking decisively and definitively in this son and moves to a discussion of the children that God gave to him. 
and the many sons and daughters who are being called to glory, whom he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call my brothers and sisters, my siblings. Now, particularly pertinent to Hebrews are the verses that immediately lead up to 8.17 and 18. The verses quoted by the PT in Hebrews 2.13. Isaiah 8.13 says this, Sanctify the Lord himself and let him be your fear. The Holman Christian Standard Bible captures the sense. You are to regard only the Lord of the armies or the Lord of hosts as holy. Only he should be feared. Only he should be held in awe. Only he should be held in awe. That sounds just like looking away from all others to Jesus in Hebrews 12 too. Only he should be held in awe of all human beings. Only he, the God man, the man Christ Jesus, the mediator between God and humanity should be held in awe. Peter actually quotes part of this verse while accommodating it to his own time in his first epistle to those who are enduring a fiery ordeal. In 1 Peter 3.15, he wrote, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts and be prepared to offer a speech in defense to anyone who asks you to give an account of the hope that is in you and to do it with courtesy and due respect. Intriguing is the use of that word sanctify there. It's very intriguing that the word sanctify is used in 1 Peter 3.15, quoting Isaiah 8.13. Given that Hebrews 2.11-13 has to do with the solidarity of the sanctifier with the sanctified. Here, the sanctified are to sanctify the sanctifier in that they are to regard only the Lord Jesus Christ and no other Lord. No other as Lord. This exhortation in the time of Isaiah is a powerful word. Listen carefully. I'm going to close. This exhortation in the time of Isaiah is a powerful word to us in a culture riddled with idols. This exhortation also correlates with the PT's encouragement in Hebrews 13, 5b through verse 6, which he takes from Deuteronomy 31 6 and Psalm 118 6, which is the Greek text, Psalm 117 6. And he writes this Be content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never desert or abandon you. Therefore, 
we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Are you ashamed? And can you be brought to shame by what man thinks of you? By what social media says about you? Are you afraid of being canceled? Are you afraid of being disliked or not liked or disfriended? The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? You know what Jesus did on the cross? Despise the shame. That means he didn't think anything at all about how culture viewed him or how the religionists at the foot of his cross viewed him or how people judged him. He was after the approval of his father. And he gained that approval. It can be proven that he gained the father's approval by a little thing called resurrection from the dead exaltation to the right side of the majesty on high and the universal worship of all creation of this one who could not save himself says Psalm 22:30, who did not save himself, but who died and tasted sin, tasted deaths, wait, sins wages for everyone in order to save everyone. What if he cared about what the Pharisees thought? What if he cared about what the Sadducees thought? What if he cared about what his doubting and fallible disciples thought? Doubting and fallible, not infallible. What if he cared about human opinion? What if he cared about the adversary's opinion through people? Then we wouldn't be saved. But he endured the cross and persevered through the cross because he despised the shame and thought nothing of what people thought of him and how they may have been shamed by him. He thought nothing of the shame. He thought everything of the honor and the glory of God the Father. And therefore, we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. Men crowned him with a crown of thorns a crown of shame. God crowned him with glory and honor. That's all I have to say today.